It is my own private opinion that Paul's letter to the Romans is the greatest letter ever written. It spells out in breathtaking detail the gospel of God. That is the good news of what God has accomplished for the sake of his name, for the praise of his glory, and for the full and lasting enjoyment of all who come to trust and treasure his son, our savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Leon Morris said that God is the most important word in the letter to the Romans. He went on and said, Romans is a book about God. No topic is treated with anything like the frequency of God. Everything Paul touches in this letter, he relates to God. In our concern to understand what the apostle is saying about righteousness, justification, and the like, we ought not to overlook his tremendous concentration on God. There is nothing like the book of Romans, he concludes. So if you happen to have your Bible, which I hope you do, please take it out and turn with me to the very last chapter in Paul's letter to the Romans. Romans chapter 16. Romans chapter 16. Here you are on your very last night of this camp. You have met new friends, hopefully that will last throughout the years for the glory of Christ. You've engaged in serious conversations. You've been immersed in God's truth. You have had fun, rightfully so. You've heard moving testimonies of what God in his goodness has done, both in saving sinners, like we heard last night, and in welcoming martyrs into heaven. But it's time to go home. Back to chores. Back to family. Whether that's a safe place, a happy place, or whether that's an unstable, miserable place. The reality is that you're going back to hardships and trials and confusion and the daily grind of everyday life. In short, you're going back down to the valley. And I want to ask you, in light of everything you have learned this week, what are you going to live for from here on out? What are you going to live for when you get back? Some of you are young. Some are teenagers and some are older. Some of you are homeschooled. Some of you are homeschool moms. Some of you are in public school. Some of you are getting closer to graduating high school. Some of you are struggling with anxiety and confusion and identity. And some of you seem to really know by God's grace who you are and why you're here. And some of you are serious about God and reality and life. And some of you just aren't. What I hope to do in this last session is give you something massively important to live for. No matter who you are or where you've come from. And I'm not saying that this is one of many massively important realities to live for. But this is the single most important reality, not only to live for, but to die for. And that reality is the glory of God, the glory of God. The title of my message tonight is a bit puritanical, so you'll have to forgive me. 
the center and supreme goal of all things, the glory of God in Christ. There are many things in life that we just cannot be sure of, but there is something that you can be absolutely sure of. And it has to do with two of the most important questions that you as a person made in the image of God can ask yourself tonight. Number one, who am I? And number two, why am I? Or why am I here? And I'm here to tell you with unshakable and unhesitating certainty and with all of the authority of God's inspired word backing this claim that you are made in the image of God and you exist for the glory of God. Every single one of you. It's amazing that as a pastor, I can look people in the eye and say, I don't know a lot of things about your life, but I know that you are made in the image of God and you are made for the glory of God. And that's true of every single one of you. Indeed, it's why everything exists. Unless you want to be in the place of God, it should be good news to you that you are not the center of the universe and you are not the center of reality. That truth ought to free you and take off of you a massive amount of weight and pressure and anxiety. Listen to me very carefully. The absolute center of the universe and of reality and the ultimate goal of the universe and of reality is the glory of God in Jesus Christ. That's what it's all for. That's why it is all here. And I want to show you that tonight from one of the greatest letters ever written, Paul's letter to the Christians in Rome. You know, we can learn a lot about what's important by how some, something or someone ends. You often hear of someone's famous last words, their deathbed words. We heard last night what was infinitely important to Polycarp in his dying hour and infinitely important to Perpetua in her dying hour. And it's certainly true about the book of Romans and how it ends. Paul has expounded and unpacked the glorious gospel of God. He has shown that everyone needs to be saved from the righteous wrath of God by the magnanimous grace of God that glorifies the almighty power and wisdom of God. He is done explaining. He is done expounding. He is done defending, done arguing, done exhorting at this point. In the book of Romans, he is just worshiping. He is worshiping. Listen to the very last words of the Apostle Paul in this breathtaking letter. Romans chapter 16, verse 27. Now to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. I want to do three things tonight that I trust will be for your greatest good and your full and lasting joy in the God whose image you are made in and the God whose glory you are made for. First, I want to do what seems absolutely daunting and impossible. I want to attempt to define the glory of God. We talk about it all the time and we assume that everyone knows what we're talking about. So I want to try to make a stab at defining the glory of God. Secondly, I want to unpack that little phrase in that verse, to God be glory. To God be glory. 
And third, I want to walk you through the book of Romans to show you that the absolute center of the universe and of reality and the ultimate goal of the universe and of reality is the glory of God in Jesus Christ. My hope and my prayer and my burden ever since I've heard of this camp is that you would join the Apostle Paul and align the entirety of your life with what we see tonight in Romans. God is worthy of every single one of you making his glory the absolute center and ultimate goal of your life and existence. I don't care how old you are or where you are in life. He is worthy of you making him the center and goal of your very existence. And so let's try to define the glory of God. This is massively important, but we have to try. If the heavens above us are screaming, declaring the glory of God according to Psalm 19.1, and if the earth all around us, according to Isaiah 6, is full of his glory, and if I'm going to stand here and make these massive claims about the glory of God being the center and supreme goal of everything, and how the glory of God ought to be the center and goal of your life, then we can't afford to ignore it. Or assume that everyone knows what we're talking about. It's massively important. It's difficult to define because it's more like trying to explain the word splendor than the word spaghetti. You can explain spaghetti. My son Jaden loves spaghetti. His worst food. He hates it. It's a meal, you can say, consisting of boiled, stringy pasta overlaid with a tomato-like paste, base paste, I guess you could say, that that has ground meat or meatballs in it. That's spaghetti. You put your fork in it, you spin it around and you eat spaghetti. But you can't do that with the word splendor. You can't do that with the word magnificence. You can't do that with the word beauty. You know splendor and you know beauty when you see it, but you can't explain it. You see it in the sunset. You see it in the sunrise. You see it in the breathtaking beauty of the night sky. The word glory in the Hebrew signifies something weighty, something heavy. It was used to describe King Solomon's wealth and his riches. The man was loaded with riches. He was weighty with wealth. Today we talk about a celebrity's net worth, right? A celebrity's net worth. And what we mean by that is it's their total accumulated wealth, everything They have. That's one of the ways the word glory is used in the Bible. It's God's net worth, if you will. All that he is and all that he possesses as the sovereign God of the universe. Robert Raymond said that God's glory is the inescapable weight of the sheer intrinsic godness of God. The inescapable weight of the sheer intrinsic godness. Godness of God. Well, that's only half of it. That's not all that his glory is. The Bible also uses the word glory to describe the manifest beauty and splendor of God's holiness. The word holy, as we heard yesterday, means separate. It means to be set apart from that which is common. Separate, And when the word holiness is used with reference to God, the emphasis is on God's utter and total uniqueness as God. He is in a category all by himself. 
all by himself. There is nothing and no one like him in all of creation. If I were to take the greatest star in the known universe and place it next to one of Jonas's tiny microscopic discoveries under his microscope, and I were to ask you, which one is more like God, this massive star or this little bitty cell? What would you say? Star, why? I'm here to tell you that neither, neither, neither of those things are like God because God is holy and there is absolutely no one and nothing like him. First Samuel 2, 2 says, there is none holy like the Lord. There is none besides you. We talk about God's holiness. We're talking about the fact that there is nothing like him. At all, As one theologian put it, the holiness of God is his concealed glory and the holiness of God is his revealed holiness. Let me just show you an example of this. Isaiah chapter six. Isaiah writes in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high sitting upon a throne lifted up the train of his robe filled the temple and above him stood the seraphim each had six wings with two he covered his face with two he covered his feet and with two he flew and one called to another and said holy 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 is the lord of hosts the whole earth is full of his you would expect him to say holiness because he just repeated the word holy three times Holy, holy, holy. The whole earth is full of his holiness, but he doesn't do that. That's what these angels are intrigued by, his holiness. But they are saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. That's because God's holiness is his glory revealed. God's holiness, sorry, God's holiness is his glory concealed, whereas God's glory is his holiness revealed for others to see. God's glory is his holiness manifested, put on display, just like we see here in Isaiah chapter 6. His glory is the revelation of the net worth of his infinite and unparalleled holiness. One more example, and this one is very explicit. Leviticus chapter 10 verse 3 trying to show you that the glory of God is the revealed holiness of God. Leviticus 10.3, God says, I will demonstrate my holiness to those who are near me and I will reveal my glory before all the people. Did you catch that? In other words, the demonstration of his holiness is the revelation of his glory. God's glory is the visible demonstration, the open manifestation of his holiness. And so when you put it all together, we can define the glory of God like this. The indescribably beautiful revelation or manifestation of the infinite weight and worth of all that God is in his matchless holiness. The glory of God is the indescribably beautiful manifestation of the infinite weight and worth of all that God is in his matchless Holiness. So that's my attempt at defining the undefinable. It's no wonder that Jesus is referred to as the radiance of the glory of God in light of that definition. Jesus is the indescribably beautiful revelation of the infinite weight and worth of all that God is in his matchless holiness. That's who he is. 
And secondly, let's try to unpack the words to God be glory. What does that mean? What's well, helpful to know as we set out to understand that, that the word be is not there in the original. It simply says to God glory forevermore. There's no be. There's no verb. Whatever this is, we know that God is, Paul is worshiping and however we take this phrase, we ought to follow in Paul's steps in worshiping the living God. But the way Paul leaves it, it can be, I think it can be taken as both, number one, a worshipful statement of objective truth. God is glorious. And secondly, we can take it as a worshipful statement of subjective longing. It can be a worshipful statement of fact. God alone is glorious or to God alone belongs glory. Whether people acknowledge it or not, he's glorious with or without us. And the day is coming when all will finally acknowledge that he alone is glorious. Or it can be a worshipful statement of subjective longing. As though Paul is saying, may God, oh, may God receive all the glory. To God alone be glory. Praise him, exalt him, extol him, worship him. It could very well be Paul's inner longing that Paul be, that God be adored and magnified as supremely great and glorious. The reason I think it can go both ways is because the Bible, in many other places, describes God as infinitely glorious in his holiness, which is why we ought to say with Psalm 115.1, not to us, not to us, but to your name, give glory. Psalm 29.2 says, give to Yahweh the glory due his name, worship him in the splendor of holiness. This is what we were made for. To glorify and honor and praise the living God. And it's important to note that when we give God glory, we actually don't add a single thing to his intrinsic glory. It's not like we make him look more glorious. We add to his ontological holiness, glory, his, the glory of his being, the glory of his nature. We don't add anything. He is infinitely glorious with or without us. But... That's what we're made for, to glorify God. And until we get this right, life will make no sense. Life will make no sense. Until you realize what you're made for, life will make no sense. So that's how Paul is ending this letter to the Romans. God is glorious forevermore, and may he receive from me and you and all the nations the glory and praise that he alone is worthy of as God. And so having seen how Paul ends this massively important letter with the glory of God, I want to spend the remaining minutes that I have with you walking you through the book of Romans in order to show you that the absolute center of the universe and of reality and the ultimate goal of the universe and of reality is the glory of God in Jesus Christ. And so I ask you to join me in this glory-filled walk through the book of Romans. Starting chapter one. May God grant you eyes to see every single one of you and myself. May God grant you eyes to see and savor and be forever satisfied with the glory that you were made for. Chapter one, verse five, Paul says that he and the other apostles received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of Christ's name among all the nations. And you might say, I don't see the word glory there. 
It says for the sake of his name, not for the sake of his glory. But in tracing the theme of the glory of God through Romans, it is only right that we begin right here because this verse is dripping with glory. You see, the Old Testament uses the glory of God and the name of God interchangeably. The glory of God and the name of God. Psalm 8.1, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Or how about Psalm 72, 19? Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Glory, name, glory, name. And the clearest example of this is in Psalm 102, verse 15. Nations will fear the name of Yahweh and all the kings of the earth will fear your glory. Glory, name, glory, name, constantly used interchangeably throughout the Bible. Why was Paul made an apostle? Why was he sent to preach Christ? Why was he sent to the Gentiles? That the glory of Christ, the name of Christ might be magnified and glorified and made much of among all the nations of the earth. The great great commission is not about getting sinners out of hell and into heaven. The great commission is first and foremost about glorifying the name of And glory of Jesus Christ. That his name be praised among the nations. Heaven's the benefit of that. Heaven's the byproduct of that. It's all for the sake of his name and his glory. And all of this assumes that the name of Christ and the glory of Christ are not being magnified in this world right now. Among the nations. And that brings us to Romans chapter 1 verse 21. As we begin to trace the glory of God. Romans 1.21, we experience and witness the tragedy of the human race. He says, for although they knew God, that is all of humanity, you've never met a single person who didn't know God. They know he exists. It's evident in creation. You've been learning that all week. There's no such thing as a legitimate atheist. No excuse. They all know he exists. He leaves his footprints everywhere, his fingerprints everywhere. He says, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God. The word honor there comes from the Greek word, the Greek word glory. They did not glorify him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. They saw the glory of God evident in all of creation and they refused to give him the glory to his name. That's you. That's me. That's everyone on this planet. That's where we came from. Paul continues, verse 22. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged. Listen to this. This is the epitome of foolishness. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. This is the devastating exchange that made the great exchange upon the cross necessary. Absolutely necessary. We sinfully exchange the glory of God for sin and for idolatry and for the image and the mirror. And yet the good news of the gospel is that God in his mercy exchanged Christ's righteousness for our sin on the cross. And he crushed his own son in our place. So that all who turn to Christ in faith can have all of their sins blotted out. Because their sins will have been exchanged for his righteousness. 
the great exchange, but it stemmed from the devastating exchange of the glory of God. And after God awakens people to their foolishness in exchanging this all-satisfying, infinitely satisfying, eternally satisfying glory for sin and self and the empty things of this world, Paul says in chapter 2, verse 7, that, uh, that awakened sinners begin to long for and seek the glory of God that they traded away. Look at chapter 2, verse 7. God will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for what? Glory and honor and immortality. He will give eternal life. He continues, but for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. And look at that last verse, but glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. Gentiles aren't the only ones, friends, who have sinned against the glory and name of God. As we see here in chapter two, we're gonna see the Jews doing the same thing. So we see that the glory of God that was traded is now after the sinner is awakened to his need, convicted of his sin, is now after that glory. And what happens in the end? Those who do good, which the goodness here is not your good works, it's trusting in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, you will receive glory and honor at the end of it all. Listen to how chapter 2, verse 24 now describes the situation of the Jews. We've seen the devastating exchange made by us Gentiles. Now let's look at the Jews, the promised, privileged people of God. Verse 24, chapter 2, for as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, Jews. Chapter 2 starts out with the Jews pointing the finger at the Gentiles. God-haters. Immoral, glory traitors. And Paul says, you guys have done the same thing. You have blasphemed the name and glory of God. And in doing so, have caused the Gentiles to follow suit in blaspheming the name and glory of God. You see, the Gentiles in Paul's day thought God was an absolute joke because of the sinful lifestyle of the divinely privileged Jews. Who were supposed to be the faithful worshipers of God. They were the Israelites. To them belonged the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belonged the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, was the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. And yet, in rejecting their Messiah, they brought the Gentiles to look upon their fully and blaspheme the same God. So the Jews aren't any better off. They too, like, Gentile, like the Gentiles, have blasphemed and sinned against the name and glory of God. And now Paul comes to chapter 3 and he brings the Gentiles together and he brings the Jews together and he puts them in the same camp and he says this. Here's the verdict. Romans 3.23 All, both Jew and Gentile, all have sinned and fall short of the glory. You see this theme through Romans of the glory of God. Traded, exchanged, sought for, attained, blasphemed, and now lacking, lacking. Do you see how Paul describes the essence of sin here, by the way? Sin is lacking the glory of God. Sin is whenever you exchange the glory of God for anything else. 
as your full and lasting pleasure. It's to fall short or literally lack the glory of God. I'm extremely bothered by this translation, fall short, because of what it signifies. It seems to signify that man is trying to get to God. And you've seen the track, right? There's the cliff of the guy on one side. There's a, there's a, there's a, there's a precipice. That, and, and hell is down there. And on the other cliff, there's God saying, come on, come on, like a little you know, father and a baby. And it, it gives the impression that man is seeking for the glory of God. And he jumps off the cliff and he just falls short every time. That's not how Romans portrays man. Chapter 3, there is none seeking God. The idea of falling short, the better translation is the word lack. Lack. When Jesus, in the gospel, told the rich young ruler, you lack one thing, that's the exact same word as found here in Romans 3.23. You all have sinned and lack the glory of God. Well, why do we lack it? Answer, so we exchanged it. We traded it. We got rid of it. Romans 3.23 is explained by Romans 1.23. All have sinned and lacked the glory of God because in our sin and in our foolishness, we have exchanged the glory of God. For sin, for idolatry, and for worshiping, not images made out of stone and, and wood, but the image in the mirror. Become lovers of self instead of lovers of God. Well, after Paul goes on, and I can't do it right now, but in chapter 3, 21 through 26, the most important paragraph in all of the Bible, because it shows how God can be both just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. He goes on in chapter 4 and verse 20... The next time he mentions glory, and it's here when he explains how to receive this great salvation and the full and free forgiveness that flows from this great salvation. And he points to someone in the past to help us understand what saving faith looks like. This figure is Abraham. He says, you want to know what saving faith looks like? You want to know what it it means to believe in Christ and receive the benefits of his death and his reconciliation, reconciliating work, look to Abraham. Look at chapter 4, verse 20. No unbelief made Abraham waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith, literally giving glory to God. You know why this kind of faith gives glory to God? It's because it's a faith that says, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Saving faith brings glory to God because it puts his saving grace on display. We're the weak ones. He's the infinitely strong one. We are the sick ones. He is the great physician. We are the foolish ones who have traded the glory of God. And he is the infinitely wise God who devises a plan to save sinners from the wrath of God because of the love of God in a way that never once compromises the righteousness of God. He is the... God who is merciful and ready to forgive and we are the sinful and we are the guilty. We do nothing, no work, but we rest in him. You want to know what it means to be saved? Don't do anything. Fall upon Christ. 
No works. He doesn't want your works. He wants you to fall upon Christ and his work on the cross. Listen to Romans 4, 4 and 5. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. May you come to believe in Christ with this kind of faith that calls attention to and magnifies the glory of God and his saving mercy and power. Are you seeing this centrality of the glory of God in Romans? Now watch this. The glory of God in Christ is not only the center of the universe and of reality, but it is the ultimate goal of the universe and of reality. The very object of our greatest hope. Romans chapter 5 Verse one, therefore, since we have now been justified by faith, we have peace with God. That peace is a fact and it is a feeling. It's not always a feeling, but it is always a fact. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, having been justified, declared righteous by faith alone in Christ alone. And now verse two, through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. The glory once exchanged is the glory that is now our hope one day. The glory that we exchanged in our utter stupidity, the glory we lack because of our foolishness is now the glory that stands at the end of the Christian's journey as our ultimate hope and expectation. We will see this glory, the indescribably beautiful revelation of the infinite weight and worth of all that God is in his matchless holiness. Well, how do we get there, Paul? How do we get from dust to glory? From being foolish glory traders to joyful glory possessors. The answer is the gospel. The answer is the gospel. Go to Romans chapter 6, verse 4. Having been justified by faith, having the hope of glory, then what do we do now? Do we just sin because we're justified and we're destined for glory? Do we just sin so that grace may abound? Paul says, by no means. How can we who have died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Isn't it amazing that the glory we threw away is the glory that comes back to raise our Savior from the grave? And this glory will be revealed to us. Skip ahead to Romans chapter 8. We're coming. We're we're rushing towards the finish line. Romans chapter 8. One of the greatest chapters in all of the Bible. In one of the greatest letters in all of the Bible. Romans chapter 8 verse 16. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ if we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So now we're, we're, we're starting to get into the language of not just laying hold of glory, but we ourselves being glorified with Christ. We're going to share in his glory. That is amazing grace that we who spit in the face of God and said, I I would rather pursue myself than your glory would one day ourselves be glorified with Christ. Having our sins blotted out forever in an ocean of reconciling blood. 
Romans chapter 8, verse 20. For the creation was subjected to futility. Back in Genesis chapter 3, when sin came into the world, brought death with it, creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Do you get what this is saying? Is that one day when, according to 1 Corinthians 15, this mortal body puts on immortality, and when I and you and everyone who has believed in Christ, according to Matthew chapter 13, shines in the kingdom of their Father, brighter than the sun, this creation won't be able to contain it. And so after the sons and daughters of God are glorified with Christ, then the habitation where we live, where we dwell, where we move, is going to have to be made new. We're going to need a new home, and that's what he's saying. The creation right now is waiting, waiting for Christ to return. That's why in the, the Psalms in the 90s are talking about the hills and the rivers clapping, rejoicing for the Lord is coming. All of creation is yearning, eagerly waiting for Christ to return, for us to be made like him, and then for the creation to follow suit in pattern right after us. This is why Romans chapter 8, verse 28 says this. For we know. For we know, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Why is that? Because we're destined for glory. No matter what you go through, those who love God will all work out for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. And he connects it and he explains why everything works together for good. Look at verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also what? Glorified. This is the goal, not only of creation, This is the goal of redemption, that we would be glorified with Christ. The glory of God is the goal of all things, including our salvation. The glory of God is our ultimate hope. To behold it, to become radiant displayers of it. The very thing we were made for, what God intended in creating image bearers to display his glory, is what God accomplishes through Jesus Christ. As we are made in his image and likeness to perfectly display one day the glory of God's weight and his worth. Well, now we come to chapter 9 where Paul explains his covenant faithfulness to his promises to Israel. And explains what's wrong in the world. And the only thing that can, we can make sense regarding the problem of evil in this world is where we come to Romans chapter 9 verses 22 and 23. Why does God do what he does? Paul says, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his what? His glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. I can't explain 
why people get away with things in this world and why evil is abounding. But I know this, according to Romans chapter 9, that one day when he demonstrates the glory of his holy wrath against sin, it will be us on the other side who are uh, astounded and silenced at the riches of his glory that he's revealing to us as vessels of mercy, those whom he prepared beforehand for glory. And so when Paul comes to this end of this massive section, Romans 9, 10, and 11, where he explains God's covenant faithfulness and his glorious infinite wisdom in devising this gospel plan, he comes to the end, and I could imagine him with his, you know, the guy writing there, Tertius, with him. I could imagine they just sit back and say, oh, the depth of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how inscrutable are his judgments, how unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he should be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. He is the ultimate source from him. He is the ultimate sustaining power and means of accomplishing his glorious purposes through him. And he is the ultimate goal of all things to him. To him be glory forever and ever. And then Paul, we, let's quickly go to chapter 15 as we, we, we're putting down the wing flaps. We're about to land as it were. We see here the very purpose of the church. And guess what? It centers around, you guessed it, the glory of God. Church does not exist to meet your felt needs and my felt needs. The church exists to magnify the glory and greatness of Almighty God. The church is not a social club to satisfy your loneliness. That's a byproduct. No, no, don't, I don't want to negate that. But the ultimate purpose of the church is to magnify and glorify all that God is for us in Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 15, verse 5. He says, may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is why the church exists. It's not to have a bunch of little individual rogue, individual Christians. It's to have a community of people surrounding the truth, gathered by the truth, being fed by the truth, upholding the truth as the pillar and buttress of the truth. For what purpose ultimately? To glorify with one voice, many individuals, many hearts, many redeemed souls, but one voice glorifying the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ with one voice saying, you are worthy of it all. You are glorious. You are worthy of all honor and praise and worship. This is why Christ came. This is why he is building his church, is that God would be glorified. We get all the benefits of that. We get forgiveness of all of our sins. We get a new family, We get the promise and hope of a new world all because Christ is doing all that he does in building his church to glorify God. It's why we exist as a church. And so, look at verse 7. Therefore, in light of all this, welcome one another. You see, the church was struggling. He's just explored some of the 
problems in chapter 14. You have guys that are still clinging to the Sabbath, and you have other guys that are just like, sorry, man, I just see it as any other day. We're not in that old covenant anymore. You have guys upset, Jews, who uh, Gentiles who are eating meat. And the Gentiles are like, I ain't no vegetarian, man. I want bacon. I want a hamburger. <laughs> and so there was these tensions between them. Steaks, as we talked about last night. And Paul says, I want you guys to welcome one another. As Christ has welcomed you, notice, for the glory of God. Why did Christ welcome you into his kingdom? Why did Christ kick the doors of the kingdom open, as it were, and bring in many, many sons and daughters for the glory of God? He welcomed you for the glory of God. Christ, as the perfect son, does all that he does for the glory of God. That's why he welcomed you. That's why you're forgiven. That's why you are redeemed for the glory and praise of almighty God. You and I are not the ultimate reason for God saving us. We're saved for the glory of God. Read Ephesians chapter one again and again and again, three times. Why did God do everything he did? Why did he do the choosing, the redeeming, the sealing, the everything for the praise of his glory, the praise of his glory? glory. And so let's look at the next few verses. 15 verse 8. For I tell you, this is why you should welcome one another. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised. That is, he came to his own people. He, he, he took on human flesh. The word became flesh. Why? He says to show God's truthfulness. Christ was incarnated and came to his people to prove to the people that God keeps his word. He promised the Messiah, I've come, because God never lies, as we talked about in our earlier session. That's why Christ came, was to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. But notice verse 9, why else did, why, why else did Christ come? In order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. That's why Christ came, was that we Gentiles would glorify God for his mercy. Glorify God for his mercy. We were created and saved to glorify God. Now, what does it mean to glorify? Really quick, this is really important. What what does it mean to glorify God? It's basically to, to magnify God very similar to magnifying something. We need to get this right because we have to ask ourselves, do we magnify God the way Jonas did with us in his dino lab, taking really small realities and blowing them up to make them appear bigger than they are? No, that's not it. It's more like what we did last night where we we put those telescopes and pointed them to the sky. We took massive objects and we magnified them so we could see them as they really are or close to as they really are. That's the way we're to magnify God. We're not taking a small God and, and saying, oh, poor God, you got no followers. You got no, no love, no worship. Here, let's try to make you look bigger than you are. That's not it. We are called to take the telescope of truth and love and everything we are called to be as Christians and we are to point it up to all that God is and his weight and his worth in all of his intrinsic holiness and we are to Bring that, that telescope to the eyes of lost sinners and say, this is what you were made for. Get your head out of your belly button. You're made to behold this. 
You're made to be satisfied in this. We are called to glorify and magnify God the way our telescopes did last night with those stars. We're not taking small things and making them look bigger. We are taking the most infinitely greatest reality and showing him off as he is. Well, we're called to glorify God for his mercy. He had no reason to save us but mercy. Christ in his love and mercy came to pay a debt that he did not owe to save a hell-bound people who did not deserve it. We are to glorify God for his mercy. Now we come to the very end, verse 25 of chapter 16. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to, the, according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation that was kept secret for long ages but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. The Christian life begins in regeneration with a sight of the glory of God. Second Corinthians chapter four, verse six. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's how the Christian life begins. You know how the Christian life is sustained? With a sight and by beholding that same glory. Listen to just a few verses earlier. 2 Corinthians 3.18. We all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Regeneration happens when we catch a glimpse of the glory of Christ. Sanctification is sustained by us looking to the same glorious Lord. And the Christian life will end on that final day with the sight of the glory of Christ, which is why Paul calls this our blessed hope. We are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory. The appearing of what? The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Beloved, John says, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. The Christian life begins by beholding the glory of Christ. The Christian life is sustained by beholding the glory of Christ. The Christian life ends when we are glorified by beholding Christ as he is, and the Christian's hope for all eternity is to bask in the glory of God in Christ, when Jesus was praying in that high priestly prayer, that conclusion, I want it read on my deathbed if I have a deathbed experience. Father, he says, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. Friends, this light momentary affliction that we experience in this life, and it is light compared to what we heard last night. This light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. 80 years of pain and cancer and suffering and broken family. It's all preparing you for an eternal weight of glory that nothing can compare to. That's where we are headed. And therefore, Paul says, I endure everything for the sake of the elect. 
that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ with eternal glory. He's called us to his eternal glory in Christ. Friends, this is something to live for and this is something to die for. As you go forth from this place, fix your eyes, plead with God to give you eyes to see and savor and be satisfied in the glory of God as it's revealed supremely in the face of Jesus Christ. And so we pray the prayer of Psalm 104, verse 31. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. This is what we were made for. Heaven is screaming at you right now with the stars, with the sun, with the beautiful sunsets. The earth is pointing you to the glory of God. May this be what you are living for, friend. If the ultimate source, if if, if the absolute center of the universe and of reality And if the ultimate goal of the universe and of reality is the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, what is keeping you from centering your life around this? Let it burn away like chaff. Let it burn away. You are made in the image of God and you exist for the glory of God to see and forever be satisfied in his glory. Father, we pray this evening that what we've seen in the book of Romans regarding the glory that was traded and exchanged, glory that was sought for and eventually attained, and the glory that is now our hope, the glory that came seeking us when you raised Christ from the dead, the glory that is promised us at the end of the road, and the glory that we exist for as a church, may we revolve our lives around the fullness of your glory. And may we remember that as Psalm 16 says, you will show us the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And all God's people said, amen. Thank you.